One of the things that um, uh, we're, we're doing right now is we're taking a break from the book of John. As we take a break from the book of John, it is purposeful that we're doing that. We are doing that because we think there are some, some core issues that we're dealing with as a church. And instead of kind of treating the symptom of whatever those things are, um, I, I hear an echo. Do you guys hear all that? Yeah. No? Just me. Perfect. Fantastic. No problem. Um, so like, instead of treating the symptom of this kind of idea, some of the things that we're dealing with as a church, we wanna kinda of go to the root of things. And so as we look at November, um, we're doing four standalone sermons. Today, it's about biblical manhood. Next week, we'll talk about our vision for our church for 2019, which is a short vision, but some things we hope uh, that we, we want to see God do in our church in 2019. And then we'll look at biblical womanhood. Okay, it's coming. Okay, we're not just gonna talk about men, we're also gonna talk about women. And then we're gonna look at uh, at the end of, of November, before we get into Advent, what it looks like for us to be a people that is rooted in forgiveness. How can we be a people that will persevere over the long haul without an understanding of forgiveness? So that's, the, that's what we're looking at for November as we take our break. Um, and so we just read a verse, right? Like it was just a short couple of verses, but within that verse, we had these words, three words, act like men. Act like men men. And yet the sad truth of this reality of 1 Corinthians 16 is that our culture has told us to do something that says that this is what a man looks like. Our upbringing uh, has ingrained in us uh, what a man looks like. And as a result, we actually have no idea what it means to act like a man. Uh, it's troubling, really, and so um, what I want to do for us is I want to kind of just point out four things um, to begin with. There's a lot of information, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight the temptation to over-explain everything, because anytime you talk about gender roles or gender in, in general, um, everybody has like their guard up, and everybody's ready to fight over something. Um, and so my hope is that we can kind of get beyond the generalities that I'm going to speak in. And if you kind of sit there and go, well, that's not me. Okay, good. You're the exception. But this is, for the most part, how things are. Okay, so Dr. Brene Brown, who is right here in Houston, she's a leading sociologist. She has pointed out for us four cultural norms that manhood, that men are being pressured to live by. These are the four cultural norms for men these days. Number one is emotional control. So this is what it looks like to be a man. And you and I probably grew up in this world where it was said to us, don't cry. Girls cry, don't cry. Your masculinity is being defined in how you can control your emotions, even as a little boy. I can remember many times where a coach or a father figure or my own dad would tell me, why are you crying like a girl? There's this, there's this uh, I, I don't know, there's this equation with emotions and femininity. But in reality, real men, biblical men weep. Jesus, we've just saw, wept over the injustices that he encountered, over the unbelief of his people. See, emotional control, that's one of the cultural norms that we're, we're going against, number one. Number two is the priority of work. And when I say the priority of work, I mean above everything else. And we Christians hear that and we go, okay, the Bible does say that if you don't provide for your family, then you're worse than an unbeliever. So when I talk to uh, men about their work, which is a lot of my conversations about uh, with men is about their work. Um, 
Usually when I ask them, like, so why are you chasing this? And why is this your goal? And what about that over there? Usually, in some form or fashion, what comes back is, well, you know, man, I got to provide for my family. I would ask us for this, like, don't confuse provision with idolatry. There is a, there is a hum uh, in here. And so if you could fix that, Roger, that would be great. Because it's distracting to me, and I would imagine it's distracting to you. And I would say, like, there, this is a, a super important uh, topic for me to be dialed into, much less anyone else. So, so let's not, let's not um, confuse our provision with idolatry. So we are taking out of context uh, that verse in 1 Timothy 5 where it says, you are worse than a non-believer uh, if you don't provide for your family. But in that context, it's talking about providing for widows. It's not talking about your, your, your wife and your kids. It's talking about there are widows in your family, and if you do not provide for the widows in your family, the Bible does say you are worse than a non-believer. It's not about provision. It's about generosity, okay? And so I think we have to understand that so that the priority of work uh, is above everything else. This is one of those, uh, thank you, appreciate you guys. Uh, this is one of those uh, norms that the culture is causing us and calling us to conform to. The third thing is this, it's not just emotional control, it's not just priority of work, it's also pursuing status. Status, uh, that we would find status through work, through accumulation, through misusing relationships, and instead of enjoying uh, the accountability and the encouragement that comes from a brotherhood that leads us to holiness, we use our relationships to build our own kingdom. This is the third thing that we do, or at least that our culture is saying for men to become. Emotional control, the priority of work, pursuing status, and then the final thing is violence and conquest. Behind the veil of all of the abuse scandals that we can think of right now that are on the news 24-7 is this really unbiblical idea that a man pursues violence and conquest. So today, this manifests itself through verbal violence. For Christians, we might, we might beat up on one another through sarcasm. I'm guilty of that one. We would one-up one another uh, with our stories. Guilty of that one. We would misuse authority. I'm guilty of that one, I'm sure. And, and, and all of this leads us to all sorts of abuses, not just towards women, but also to other men and children. And if we add to these four norms, the, the mix-up, this conversation on gender fluidity, that it's, it's a spectrum, this gender idea, that it's not just male or female, but there's a spectrum of maleness, femaleness, itness, heness, sheness, that this, this, it's, just, it's, it's no longer black or white. If we add to all these norms, these confusions, the absence of many men in our lives when we are children, the inequality of women in the workplace, the Me Too movement, and the manipulation and abuses of women and children by men who are in authority from the entertainment industry as well as from within their own, our own church. Not this church, but the church. What we have with all these norms and all this confusion, what we have is a perfect cocktail of confusion and delusion of what it means to act like men. So we're confused, y'all. If we don't know that we're confused, I guarantee you we're confused because when we look at the news, it's a mess. Our culture is a mess. And the church, Big C Church, is no different. So when we talk about biblical manhood, I would say this, that we need, on the issue of gender, our culture is more complex than ever and it is more hostile than ever to male leadership than it probably has ever been. I want y'all to hear that. 
We're, we're more confused than ever and more hostile than ever towards male leadership. Every time we talk about eldership in our church, male leadership as like the thing for our church, we believe that the office of elder is reserved for males. The office of deacon, because we see it in the Bible, is male and female, okay? Every time we talk about the office of a pastor or an elder being a male, because we don't see any female uh, representation of elders or pastors in the scriptures, anytime we talk about that, it splits the room because we are in a hostile and confused environment of what it means to have biblical leadership, of what it means to have male leadership. What we need is not a neutered masculinity or less male leadership in our churches, our homes, or our workplaces. We need to recapture biblical masculinity for our churches, for our homes, and for our workplaces. We need the kind of men that are ready to lay down their lives for others as Christ laid down his life for us. We need men who will rise up and be the resistance against these cultural norms of emotional negligence, of overworking, of status chasing, and relational conquest. We need men in this church who will rise up, bury their dreams on the path of following Jesus so that he can birth a new dream in us to build his kingdom and not our own. That's what we need. So how will we get there? Well, we gotta dig into the biblical design to understand how men are designed. So this is gonna be like an act like men day. This is like man Sunday. We will have woman Sunday in a couple of weeks. So hang tight, come back for that one. So if you're a female here, this has everything to do with you because you are in relationship with males on some level. And for the males here, this has everything for us today because we indeed are being called to something greater than what we are being dragged into by our culture. So how do we form this resistance as men? Four things I want us to resist as biblical men, and I think the Bible tells us to resist. We're gonna be in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 for the bulk of our day. We're gonna end in 1 Corinthians 16, but because we don't know how to act like men, we don't know what man, a man looks like, we gotta go rediscover that in God's original design. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Okay, so turn there with me if you can, because here's what I want us to see. In the very first pages of Scripture, in the very first uh, chapter of the Bible... We find our first resistance, and this is the first thing that I want all of us men to resist. Gender inequality. Gender inequality. That what I mean by that is this, that God created male and female equal in worth and dignity. We are equal in worth and dignity. Both of us, male and female, uh, uh, hold within us the image of God. So let's get to 1, 26 through 28. When God created male and female, this is what the Bible says. You ready? I'm ready. Then God said, let us, that's God, that's Father, Son, and Spirit, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that comes on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And what did he do with male and female? Not just males, male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, 
subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This passage is known as the cultural mandate. The thing that God tells male and female to go create culture, go create cities, go biologically reproduce, fill the earth with humanity, and it happens to both male and female. There is equality in God's blessing and in God's command to rule over the earth. That's not just a man's job, it is a woman's job too. There is equality here. I want you to see that. Because anytime that we as men, and, and, and sometimes we men, although we are good and well-intentioned, we believe it is okay to pour out our heart, our soul, and our mind at work, and then we come home and we treat our wife like she's some sort of a butler or a waiter. And, and if we're going to take this seriously, what we've got to understand is that God has created us equally, that if we are to, to demean our wives in any way in this mutual pursuit to expand God's kingdom upon the earth. If we're to demean them in any way, we are treating them as if they are, have, don't have the image of God in them. And the truth is this. Both male and female were given this call to rule over the earth, to bear God's image, to represent him on the earth. Our wives, our husbands, your husbands, bear the image of God. Therefore, they have the most respect inherently in them. I want you to see that because when we demean our wives in any way or we favor our sons, we spend more time with our sons because they hunt and fish and I like to hunt and fish. If we do either one of these, we are committing some of the most heinous and subtle sins that we can commit against God's design. And I grew up in a family where I was favored over my sister in a lot of ways. I don't know if they would ever uh, admit to that, especially, but that's, that's the way it was, right? So, and so I would spend a lot more time with my dad because I hunted and fished, and my sister would be kind of left on the dock, so to speak. And it wasn't until a lot later that that got all a little bit corrected, but it, it was too late in some ways. Well, we see this in the Bible, don't we? We see this with, with Jacob and Esau and Isaac, favoring one over another. We see favoritism. We see uh, how it's detrimental. So, this happens in my home, right? So uh, most of you know that like my wife went to work for full time here. She's been here seven days this week at Frost Elementary. God bless her. She's about to have five more days in her. That'll be 12 straight days at Frost Elementary. Uh, she has taught uh, full time now for just a few months. And as we were ramping up for her to be teaching full time, we had this conversation both with ourselves and with our counselor coach that we check in with once a month. And he would, she would say, hey, look, I, I just wanna go teach again. I wanna get out of the house and I wanna go and just go fulfill what I think is God's calling on my life. And the counselor looked at me and he goes, how do you feel about that? Because he knows that if I'm not behind her, we gotta deal with that. And I looked at him and I was like, dude, I'm good with this. I think it's great. It would be super self selfish, not shellfish, selfish of me to be like, hey, I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you've forgotten this, Melissa, but um, I do pastoral work and, um, and there's no real end to that. And so if you could just be available to just help me achieve all of my dreams, that would be great. Now, you might hear that and go, wow, that's really selfish of you and shellfish of you. And at the same time, there are things in us that I think we allow that type of thing to happen within our own marriages. We just expect our wives to drop everything because we don't really value what they do, much less who they are. 
created in the image of God. Men and women are created equal in worth and in dignity. And yet we fulfill roles that are complementary to one another, that have unique design as males and females. And so the second thing I want you to, to resist as men, number one, resist gender inequality. We were both created in the image of God. The next thing is resist gender neutrality. Resist gender neutrality. Here's what this means. Our culture wants us to flatten out gender roles. That hierarchy is bad. You saw this in Google this week. Did you not? Did you watch the news at all? You didn't see? Did you not watch the news? We need to watch the news, people. All right. So look, you, you saw this in Google this week. You saw signs everywhere that they were talking about structure and hierarchy is bad. But it will create chaos if there's no hierarchy. God has created things to have an order. And so we are in a culture that is calling for us to flatten out gender roles. And I would say this, some well-intentioned Christians are even quoting the Bible to flatten out gender roles. They quote uh, Galatians 3, 28, where it says, for there is no male or female, talking about the equality that we have in the family of God. And here is the truth. He also says that there's no Jew or Greek, slave or master, male or female, what Paul is getting at there is not that we are somehow erasing these differences, but that these differences aren't the thing that create our identity. We are instead sons and daughters, heirs with Christ. So he's saying, let those divisions just fall by the wayside, whether it be race, race or gender or social status, whatever it is, find your identity in Jesus that you're a son or daughter of God. It's not erasing gender. You can't do that and still have the biblical model for a home where the, the male, the, the man, is the head of the female, just like Jesus is the head of the church. That's what Ephesians 5 says. In the midst of submit to one another is hierarchy and structure and roles and distinctiveness. So although we are created equally, there is a distinction in how God wants us to operate on the earth. I say that because I want us to see what God's original design for us is in Genesis 2. So we're going to turn the page in Genesis 2, from Genesis 1 now to Genesis 2. And then I want us to see how we are in a wholly corrupt world from Genesis 3. Genesis 2, God's good and beautiful design. Genesis 3, the corruption that came after the fall of Adam and Eve. Satanic influence. That's our world. So first things first, we've got to get to our unique design as men. Our unique design as men. I want us to see this because it's a beautiful thing to see this, especially in comparison to those uh, norms, those cultural norms that Brene Brown kind of fleshes out for us. Specifically in regards to work and relationship and status and power and authority. Have all that in the background as you look at this. This is what Genesis 2 verse 5 will say. Because if we got to understand the first thing is that God created men and he gave us the gift of work. He gave us this gift of work. But there's something going on in the background here. Look, this is what it says in Genesis 2.5. I'm going to read 5 all the way down to 15. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. 
And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and God for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now I could have just read that verse. That the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. But I wanted you to see in verses 5 through really 9, and then again, I didn't read this part, but there are boundaries within the thing that God created you to work. Many of us, as men, have this temptation to give in to every demand for our work, that we really would put it above most things for the sake of provision. But even with the first man, there were boundaries around what he was called to work and watch. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God put the man and put him in the garden. So this call to fill the earth starts within boundaries of a garden to work it and to watch it, to provide for it and to protect it. And this was always supposed to be out of God's provision for man, not so that man would work for God's provision. Instead, it was to, to, to care for what God had already done. But see, something bad has happened. This is God's original intent that we would, we would work it, that we would tend it, that we would have a watchful eye on it, that we would pay careful attention to watch whatever, uh, whatever comes against it and then therefore watch for its ultimate good. And yet if we just looked just one page over in Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19, we will see how the enemy has come in and God has cursed us as a result of our trusting the enemy, Satan. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. It is no accident that our death is associated with our work. And it's also no accident that our work as men and women, but as men, would be frustrating, would be painful, would be arduous. I mean, have you ever gone to work and gone, just the chips are stacked against me today? Like, I don't know about you, but yesterday was one of those days for me. Like, there are days where I don't, I don't handle this call for my wife to work full-time all that well. This week was one of those weeks. There were two, count them, two early release dates this week. I don't know why you do that. Why can't you just take the whole day off on Friday? But you can't do that. That makes too much sense. So you got to have two early release dates, one on Thursday and one on Friday. And so what that does for my work week is that it just, just compresses it. And when that happens for me, I usually get grumpy. I usually get frustrated. I usually get a little short with my kids, a little short with my wife. And that call for her to go and fulfill her calling starts to just press in on me. In the midst of these types of weeks, I just go, my goodness, the fall is real. I can't get it done. I want to get it done. I can't get it done. The, the chips are stacked against me. And the Bible would say, yep. What God created as good 
now all of a sudden becomes a God because of the frustrations that are involved and it runs you if we're not careful as men. Secondly, not just that God has created men and gave us the gift of work, it is a gift, but also that God has created us men to have a relationship with himself. Look at the next verse in Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Isn't it a beautiful thing that our God in the garden was speaking? He didn't make it to where that Adam had to intuit what was going on. He spoke verbally to Adam, and he said, you may surely eat. What a beautiful first couple of words. You may. The NIV says, you are free. You may. It is God's good pleasure to provide freedom for us. You may surely eat out of every tree of the garden, but there's boundaries in our freedom. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day, of you, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. If I was to keep going in this verse, and I just will, here we go, verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Look at that. God is looking on to Adam to see what he's going to call all the platypuses of the world. Like, I don't know how Adam comes up with that, but that's what he comes up with. It has a beaver's tail and a, okay, yeah, we're going to go with platypus. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper found for him. So the Lord God, I'll talk about this next week. So the Lord God, or a couple weeks. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed, and, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And maybe, maybe one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. God has created us for a relationship with himself he has also created a relationship, uh, created men for relationship with their wife. And yet both of these things get corrupted by the fall. Both of these relationships get corrupted by the fall. The relationship that we are supposed to have with God himself, we instead throw it back at him when his provision isn't good enough. Verse 12 of chapter three. The man said to God, when God comes after uh, the man and the female, uh, Adam and Eve, and he says, where are you? What have you been doing? How do you know that you're naked? Adam responds, and he says, the man said, verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. This woman is the, fall, is the problem here. And oh, by the way, don't you remember, you gave her to me. And he, he, he shifts blame, right? And he doesn't take responsibility. And all of a sudden, that relationship that God has created for man to have with his creator has become corrupt. And we become self-reliant. And self-reliance has never been the way of biblical manhood. Jesus corrects this for us, right? I am the true vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. But if you do not remain in me, you can do nothing. 
that was one of those verses that brought me literally to faith in Jesus, that if I don't have Jesus, I can do nothing, nothing of consequence. Yesterday I was in Ace Hardware down the street, and I had two 40-pound bags of fertilizer and one smaller pound of um, like a, a pre-emergent, I don't know, deal. I don't even know what, to, I don't even know what it is. Yeah, somebody's giving me a thumbs up. Great. It's a pre-emergent thing, like a weed thing. Um, and so I'm, I'm walking out of Ace and they're both falling out of me and my knee is hurting and my Achilles is hurting and I'm starting to limp and I get to the counter and I just throw it all down on the ground. And she goes, don't pick those up. I'll come around and scan them. I was like, oh good, this is gonna be good. So she scans them, right? And then she looks at me and she goes, now do you need help out? And the, the bad man in me rose up and said, I got it. Don't you worry about me. I got this. I'm self-reliant. I am a man. No woman is going to help me or dare you even, like, even suggest that I'm not capable of this. And so I grabbed them and got halfway out and just dropped one. I was like, I'm done. I can't do it. Dropped one, got to the car, loaded it all in, and it was just this signifying reality that I like to be self-reliant. I will not take help from anyone, and yet God has created man and said it was not good for us to be alone. And so created for us to have a woman. What he says is a helper in Genesis 2, which I can't wait to unpack for you in two weeks. Because it's not demeaning at all. Instead, that is a term that is used for God on most occasions, that he is our helper. I can't wait to unpack for us that. So we all of a sudden are, relation, are, are relationally connected to God. We're also then relationally connected with a woman. That's what we just read. If it was just up to us, we may just follow after God himself and may be satisfied with work alone. And yet God in the garden says that is not good. There are boundaries around which we should be connected to, not just with ourselves, not just with God, not just with our work, but also with our wives. The problem is that this is the very thing that the enemy came to destroy was our relationships with God and with one another. If you look at this, Instead of leading our wives, instead of Adam leading his wife, he passively sits by and waits for her destruction. If you were to read the narrative in Genesis 3, what you would find is that the serpent comes in and he doesn't talk to the leader of the household. He instead goes to the female, Eve. And it says this in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, even though God had said that you will surely die. And verse five says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So then the woman saw that the tree was for good, was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. So God gave the instruction to Adam to care for the garden. He never repeats those to Eve. It was Adam's responsibility to instruct and to care for and to lead Eve into this beautiful relationship of tending the garden and worshiping God. And he failed to do that appropriately and sat idly by while she was deceived and led into death. See, it is the result of the fall that we men would become passive, that we would become passive in the face of of great dangers against our families, 
of great dangers against our own boundaries that God has given us it is a result of the fall. And this happens suddenly, uh, subtly. Men passively disengage fights for holiness for the sake of happiness. We lack discernment on what really is going on and we simply disengage. If there's one temptation that I want to just point out for us in all of this, it is this temptation for men to just reject the responsibility to lead courageously and to sit back and watch. And so they engage, we engage in other things. We busy ourselves at work, we busy ourselves with our kids, we busy ourselves in hobbies. We don't faithfully engage making sure and ensuring that our family has a bedrock of faith in the gospel. So if you're here right now and you're going, man, that, that is like brutal to hear. There's all these norms that are pulling at me. God has designed me for some beautiful things of work within boundaries of a relationship with God, of a beautiful, naked, and unashamed relationship with my wife, and yet I don't seem to be experiencing a lot of that. I don't, I don't not, every time I engage, I fail. Every time I engage, I offend. So I just, I'd just rather sit it out. There's hope for us. Our third thing that we need to resist, the resist the drive for perfection. Men, God uses deeply flawed men to accomplish his purposes upon the earth. I want you to hear that. For the women in the house, you may not realize this, but men struggle deeply with shame because they can't be good enough. This is, this is the lie of the enemy. Like excellence is good, perfection is actually impossible. We can't be perfect. We can pursue excellence. We can even be better at pursuing God's glory. But when we start to strive for perfection, we will always fall short. Why? Because of the world that I just described of Genesis 3. It's, it's, it's set up to cause us to fail. And one of Satan's greatest weapons has always been to trick you and I into thinking that you are your own hero. And when you can't live up to the hero standards, he will heap, Satan will heap, shame upon shame upon our head. Just like he did with Adam. When Adam hid from God in the garden. Shame raises its ugly head and he tells you that you aren't good enough, you aren't gifted enough, you aren't godly enough, so why even try to lead yourself, your family, your workplace in any meaningful way that would bear fruit for the kingdom? And so my, what I felt like was really important for us this week is that we not just get half the story of these biblical heroes that we love, but that we rediscover a lot of their flaws. So you've heard of the Hall of Faith. Hall of Faith is Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 just names out for us both men and women of these people that were marked out by faith. And I want to highlight four of them for us. Number one, Noah. He had the self-control to build an ark of what most people think is decades. Decades did he build this ark. And yet the minute he gets off the ark, what happens? He gets drunk and he dishonors himself. And his sons come in and all of a sudden a curse is spoken over one of his sons. Noah is listed in the hall of faith, men. Deeply flawed and yet deeply gifted. 
Abraham, a man marked out by faith with his son Isaac, yet didn't see God's faithfulness towards him enough to resist the temptation to create in his own strength what only God wanted to provide. And so he listened to Sarah. He slept with his maidservant. He created his own family. And he had a son before Isaac named Ishmael. And that was not God's blessing. He had faith and yet lacked the foresight to see God's faithfulness. Abraham is in the hall of faith, deeply gifted and yet deeply flawed. David is listed in the hall of faith, a man who is known as a man after God's own heart, and yet he followed his own heart to lust and have an, an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. He then concocted a murderous plan to have her husband killed. Deeply flawed, deeply gifted. David's listed in the hall of faith. Moses courageously stared Pharaoh in the face to lead Israel out of Egypt, but he didn't make it to the promised land due to his anger. Though he was deeply gifted, he was also deeply flawed. Moses was listed in the hall of faith. What is my point? My point is this. If we are gonna be men who continue to truly trust in Jesus, we've got to understand that God uses deeply flawed men deeply flawed men to accomplish his purposes upon the earth. That includes you and me. This is why Paul says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the law, but of the spirit. For the letter kills and the spirit gives life. I love what Stephen texted me a couple of weeks ago out of 2 Corinthians 11. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. How crazy is that for men to boast in our weaknesses? Why would we do that? Because it all the more shows the strength and the power of Jesus in us. Finally, not that we would just resist uh, the first thing, which was gender inequality, not that we would just resist gender neutrality, not that we would just re- resist the drive, perfection, but we would resist passivity. We get now to 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14. It was a long journey, but we end here. For those of us that, that, that deal with perfectionism, for those of us that deal with control, for those of us that deal with the power that comes with being a male in this world, trying to do everything we can and yet somehow falling short, what is it that God calls us to do? It says this in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 16. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Now we know what acting like men is. It means working within boundaries. It means relating to God. It means relating to those others in our lives in a beautiful and humble way, serving their needs. Act like that man. Be strong and let all that you do be done in love. If we're gonna be watchful as men, we have to be on the constant readiness towards what is needed and also what is threatening the supply of God's mercy, of God's grace, and of God's love and his kindness in our hearts and in our family. We must be men of the watch over our souls, over the souls of, our, of those in our families, and the needs of others. Will we be awake to the truest spiritual needs in our community, in our own heart, 
in our own family. We must stand firm in the faith because when we fail, we must believe again and again in the sufficiency of Jesus. Standing firm in the faith is the only way that we will not give up hope amidst failures or listen to the voices of shame. Instead, we apply and reapply the blood of Jesus like we're out on the beach for hours upon hours. And we just need to apply and reapply sunscreen as we, as men, as we go out and do these things, may we apply and reapply the blood of Jesus, the blood of the new covenant over our sins, over our weaknesses, over our strengths, so that we would boast in weakness and believe in the gospel of God, that we in fact aren't good enough. We in fact aren't godly enough. We in fact aren't gifted enough. But Jesus was on our behalf. And so we are rooted in the faith. And we stand firm in that faith that Jesus was good enough on our behalf. So it's no wonder that we can boast in weakness. Well, it's Jesus. He has no weakness. So I stand in him, firm in Christ, and let his power then be shown through me. What would it look like for us to lead with that kind of strength? What would it look like for us to, the Bible says, it says, let all that you do be done in love. The climax of all that, uh, that a man is, is the agape love of Jesus. This love that would pour itself out for the benefit of others. See, that's what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You seek her benefit. You seek your kid's benefit at whatever cost to yourself. That all that you do, whether at work, whether at home, whether in hobby, let all that you do be done with that kind of love. This is the man that your wife will truly love and truly respect. This is the man that your kids are dying to see come alive, to be so joyful and winsome that God would so use a broken and flawed individual like you to shape their soul, like you to shape this culture, like you to make disciples that make disciples. You got to know that you're not good enough. You got to know that you're not gifted enough. You got to know that you're not godly enough to do these things, but it is Christ in you that makes any of this possible. That's the kind of man that our kids are dying to see. This is the kind of man that our cultural desperately needs a model for them to see that strength is truly found in weakness. And that leading and loving others only comes through a deep trust in Jesus. I pray that we would be men that would be rooted in these truths. That we would, we would, we would have an awareness of the spiritual realities that are going on within us within our families, within our kids, and that the symptoms that they kind of bring to the table, we would ask the Lord, what's going on beneath all of this so that we can truly be men that step into the chaos, much like Jesus stepped into our chaos, and love them in a way that they may be made right by our creator, made right with our creator through the blood of his son, through the blood of Jesus. May we be men who lead and love well and continue to trust in Jesus, especially in our weaknesses and in our failures. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We can't do this without you. We've just put before us um, some impossible things, really. But the truth is that if we're gonna be a people, men, who are driven by the kind of love that captures our hearts. We must be people and men that are rooted 
rooted in your love for us, that we would be watchful, that we would kind of take seriously and be out there looking for danger, looking for the right path forward for our family, looking for the dangers that are coming against us, that we would be strong as we boast in the weaknesses that we have because we are strong in you. Lord, let us help us be men of love, not just of leadership, not just being loud, but let us be men that are rooted and known for our love. Help us, O Father. Help us, O Spirit. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.